Welcome to Ancient Tools for Modern Living, a podcast dedicated to promoting the use of ancient spiritual and contemplative practices to restore a sense of wholeness, vitality, and connection to our humanity while meeting the challenges of modern-day living. The information presented in this podcast is not a substitute for treatment from a licensed healthcare provider. And now, here's your host, Zipporah Gerson-Miller, licensed psychotherapist and certified yoga therapist. Welcome to Ancient Tools for Modern Living. I'm so happy that you're here today because I am going to share with you a conversation that I had with one of my favorite yoga therapists. Her name is Christine Coveri Weber, and she lives in Asheville, North Carolina. I had the pleasure of meeting Christine in 2015 when she was here in Atlanta presenting um, a CEU training to behavioral health care providers on the clinical application of yoga in mental health care. And she taught us about the use of yoga to treat anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction. And I had already completed my 200-hour training and was um, in the in the process of, of continuing on to the 500-hour training, and I really thought that the content of her presentations and the way she delivered it was so important and, and almost was, was like the missing link between mental health care, behavioral health care, and the use of yoga in clinical settings. So I wanted to bring her on because I think her work will really set the stage and is really aligned with the mission and goals of the podcast, which is dedicated to promoting the integration of these ancient teachings and practices like yoga, meditation, spirituality, and other contemplative-based traditions in order to enliven a sense of wholeness, vitality, and inner essence in modern day living. So Christine is committed to the widespread adoption of yoga as a population health strategy. She's been studying yoga and holistic healing for nearly 30 years, advocating, speaking, and teaching about yoga since 1995 and training educators since 2003. Her organization, Subtle Health, provides holistic mind-body trainings, education, and clinical services with the mission of enhancing community health infrastructure. She is the director of the Subtle Health Yoga Teacher Training for Behavioral Health Professionals program in Asheville, North Carolina. She presents workshops and trainings internationally and is frequently invited to speak about yoga at healthcare conferences. She has trained extensively in many styles of yoga, including vini yoga, as well as in Asian bodywork therapy and homeopathy. She's the author of the Complete Self-Massage Workbook and has published articles in the International Association of Yoga Therapist Journal, Yoga Therapy in Practice, and other wellness publications. Her work has been featured in Red Book, Body Sense, Women's World, Natural Health, and Lifetime TV. She's a regular presenter for yogauonline.com and yogamate.com. She's provided yoga therapy to various populations in institutions and privately since 1996. So I hope you enjoy this episode and welcome to the show. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Sephora. It's my pleasure. I'm just, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with you. And because um, I, I just so honor and appreciate the work that you do. Um, I've been very inspired by um, everything you've put out there. And I, you know, these podcasts just um, are such a wonderful opportunity for me to, you know, connect with people and, and also just, you know, express my own gratitude I have towards them for oh. the work that they do. So we're going to talk today about yoga therapy and population health. And I was wondering if before we start to dive into that topic, if you could tell us a little bit about your own yoga journey, kind of what okay. brought you to yoga and what kinds of experiences you've had since you started practicing. That's all. That'll take the hour. So I'll, <laughs> I'll cut it short. So I had a, um, I had a hippie social studies teacher in sixth grade. 
Um, and she, you know, she had the long flowered skirts and the Birkenstocks and the whole thing. Uh, well, I don't know if they were Birkenstocks back in the seventies, but something like that. And she, um, taught yoga club, uh, on Wednesday afternoons. And, uh, so I remember going there and we all, you know, I, my, I was with my friends. We all thought it was silly to do yoga and it was like for, you know, old ladies, but I remember one of the first experiences I had with her and like one of the deeper experiences I had of yoga was um, doing Shavasana and she counted us from 20 back to zero. You know how sometimes you envision the numbers. And so she had us do that. And then she had us do, you know, just a body scan kind of practice. And I was lying on my back and I remember being like, I've never felt anything like that before. And at the time I, I couldn't contextualize what I was experiencing. I didn't really understand it, but I knew that it was touching a deeper place in myself than I had experienced with, with, you know, in my life. And, and that really, and, and some of the techniques I learned in that course, which was more than, you know, it was probably about 40 years ago. Uh, I still use today. I still use some of the things that I learned from my, from Miss Gail, my first, uh, my hippie social studies teacher. So, <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I left yoga for a while when I was a teenager. I got back into it when I was in college, actually when I was in grad school, um, my good friend, Maria Kirsten, was doing a lot of yoga and she would say, come on. And I was doing aerobics. It was in the late eighties, you know, and she would say, come on, we have to go to yoga. And I'd be like, Oh my God, it's such a waste of time. And, <laughs> but she kept dragging me and she kept saying, yoga is a perfect counterpart to academia and to studying and it helps to balance your mind, you know? So Maria and I would go and, and uh, to the gym and, you know, there were no sticky mats back then. We practiced yoga on one of those thick, dark blue wrestling mats. And we actually had a real Indian Swami. I have no idea where this guy came from. He had like a big black beard and he wore a turban and he would tell us to stand on our heads and, you know, do embarrassing things with our sphincters. <laughs> and I, you know, as much as I, I, I had a hard time because it wasn't trendy back then, you know, and I was, I was not, I was young. I was 22 or 23, you know, but anyway, I, I, that also experience kind of motivated me that I moved to California and in California, there wasn't a lot of yoga going on at the time. I was in San Francisco. So there was some, but, um, you know, I remember there were only like two yoga studios in the whole of the city in the early nineties, the Iyengar Institute. And I think the other one was, I think it was the, was Shivananda, but I can't remember. Might've been Satyananda. And so I, I got into yoga when I was in San Francisco to some extent, again, as a way to manage stress. And then I moved to Asia for about four years. And that's when I met my meditation teachers and, you know, really lived in ashrams and did that whole thing in the early nineties. So when I came back to the States, um, in, in 1995, I started teaching and I recently reconnected, well, probably about five or six years ago, I reconnected with Maria. It turns out she's a very well-known yoga and well-loved yoga instructor in Byron Bay, Australia. We both married, we both married guys from down under. My husband's from uh, New Zealand and her husband was from Australia. And my husband came here, but, but they moved to Australia. So maybe they were, maybe they were, uh, did the smarter thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> then, then I studied you know, when I got back to the States, I started studying lots of different styles. Um, but I really resonated with, uh, Vinny yoga because that style is quite similar to what I learned from my Bengali teachers in India, you know, very similar kind of traditional, more person centered practice. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of been my journey. I started subtle yoga in 2004 because people were saying to me, you know, I feel like I want to practice because I was teaching vinyasa. I didn't know, you know, I was just teaching what everybody else was teaching. And my students would say, well, can we practice what you practice? And I was like, you want to practice what I practice? I didn't think anybody wanted to do that. And then I realized like, oh, maybe there's some interest in more subtle practices. So that's how subtle yoga was born was just my students asking me for 
more subtle practices and more information about sort of the more traditional way that I practiced and that that's how it's emerged. And I wouldn't say that I practice in a, you know, in a quote traditional way. I, I incorporate a lot of elements from the tradition, but um, I'm really into embodied practice and, and using variations of asanas to access that deep interoceptive embodiment more than, you know, more than I am in following any kind of script. So, right. so that's kind of the back of where I'm coming from. Yeah. It's, it just sounds like such an amazing journey to have been able to go to India and study, you know, it's, you know, some of those deeper esoteric practices, you know, that we don't get to receive here as often. Well, I think they're here, but they're harder to find, right, you know, right. and, and often it's not the populist kind of yoga where you find those things. Often it is found in more obscure places. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I always refer, I always think of myself as a depth practitioner, you know, because I was, I did have that, you know, Tantra, Hatha yoga training, um, and was introduced to some of the more, you know, just some of the more, I guess, less, less known practices and Oh, who who are your teachers? So I trained with um with the Pranakriya School. Oh, right. Michael Carroll, yeah, and Marlisa Sullivan and Trey Kirkpatrick. Right. So all of the the Pranakriya people, um, which really gave me such a foundation for for tantra, you know, and um, and I find that people, you know, get they get, you know, some of them are intimidated by some of the more Western you know, yoga, so to speak, because it's so physically active and not everybody right. has that same level of physical accessibility. So I love what you're doing, um, which brings us, you know, into that whole field and scope of practice in mental and behavioral health. Right. Um, so how did you, what inspired you to want to work um, with mental and behavioral health care providers? Well, again, that can't, that comes from my own experience. And as a teenager, I had depression and eating disorders. And um, I went to lots of therapists, did a lot of psychotherapy, a lot of behavioral therapy, psychotherapy. And, and all of that was helpful. But it was really when I committed to an engaged practice. You know, I mean, these things are biopsychosocial. I needed to leave my culture to really understand and be able to reflect on what my experience was and where the depression was arising from, because I don't believe that in most cases, of course, there's major depressive disorder, but I don't believe in most cases that all depression is simply brain chemistry gone awry. I think there are numerous social determinants and, you know, the social determinants of health, numerous uh, biopsychosocial factors, cultural factors that influence um, somebody's state of mental health. So, I, when I left and went to Asia, I was quite young. I was probably, I think I was 25. And it was really at that time when, you know, studying with teachers, meditating daily, that I was able to put that, the, the mental health issues um, way behind me. Now, that's not to say that I don't still have mood swings and that I don't still occasionally notice the similar behavior, uh, similar thought patterns that arose at the time around my depression and, and eating disorders reoccur. Of course, that stuff is around, you know, but um, I do have a very intimate understanding of addiction uh, personally and also through a large extended family that has been, you know, sadly affected by depression uh, as well as uh, addiction, um, that you know, I understand. I understand those problems very personally. I also happened to marry a therapist <laughs> who was not my therapist, but when I met my husband, I knew he was quite therapeutic. You know, he has a very therapeutic uh, personality, and I actually encouraged him to go to school and get his master's degree and become a clinician. He's also a prevention specialist, and so we have collaborated. And he's a yogi, so we've collaborated over the years. Uh, in developing theory, methodology of teaching and practice to support people uh, recovering from mental health and substance abuse challenges. And, and so that's been very central in my work for many, many years. I started training behavioral health professionals in 2009 at the Mountain Area Health Education Center. I'm in the middle of one of those programs right now. We do, we do one day trainings and things like brief interventions and chronic pain and trauma. 
And then we do longer trainings. We have a couple of like three day trainings for trauma and addiction recovery and for anxiety and depression. And then we also have a whole 200 hour training that's for behavioral health professionals. So I'm in the middle of one of those right now. And I feel really incredibly um, grateful and, and inspired by the passion of the profession. Behavioral health, I find, is always cutting edge in terms of healthcare and and just the the people in that program are so inspired to learn somatic techniques to help their clients and and to take on the broader uh, perspective shift that is uh, possible um, through yoga philosophy and practice that can help people to really heal and to change and that was my experience so you know I'm very 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 fortunate I get to share that yeah. Well, and when I, you know, when I was a student in your workshops, um, I was able to take the one for anxiety and depression and the one for trauma and addiction. And, you know, as a, as a person who has gone through a master's program in clinical social work, and I've been practicing um, as a licensed clinician and um, a yoga therapist as well, what I took away from that was I, I really felt like it was the missing link between, like, how do you go through a 200-hour program and and then say you find yourself working in a hospital or, or a, um, an addiction treatment clinic or an, even a mental health outpatient clinic. So it kind of took the um, mystery of like, how do I adapt this practice that's very vigorous and very physical? Um, how do I adapt it to people who need more adaptive um, practices? Right. And so right. I, I really feel like, you know, there's, there's just few people doing that in, in this, in our country. And so, um, I, I really was, um, just very, very, you know, inspired and I took so much away from your, from your classes. So, um, so, you know, can we talk a little bit about your, you know, that, that theory you mentioned, especially for preventative health and population health and, and just kind of what your idea of is for our healthcare system and how yeah. we would unpack some of those of those concepts in population health. Mhm. Mm mhm. Okay, well, I'll I'll frame that by starting with the crisis in healthcare, if you don't mind, um, because I think that helps us to understand why we need to change something. So, you know, I, was it Einstein who said something like, if, you know, the, the definition of insanity is, is uh, doing the same thing and expecting different results, right? So, something like that. Yes, and a lot of my clients have reminded me of that statement, ironically. I think they heard it in their 12-step yeah. programs. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's so true. And, and, uh, I don't know who said it. I don't know who the, the quote comes from, but, but I think that the issue at hand is that we have a huge, uh, crisis in the healthcare system. It's, it's pervasive, it's, uh, critical and it's incredibly expensive. <laughs> uh, not to mention the fact that it's an ineffectual system. I mean, the system works quite well for acute care doesn't do so well with chronic care. And this is the age of chronic conditions. So 86% of our healthcare dollars go to chronic preventable diseases. $3.2 trillion we spend every year. Well, that was, that was 2016. And yet our health outcomes look, which, which by the way, 3.2 trillion is two and a half times more than any other country pays. So we pay almost $10,000 or more than $10,000 rather per person. I, the reason I'm not sure about that number is because it goes, it gets a little higher every year. <laughs> and 2015, it was almost 10,000 and 2016, it surpassed 10,000. Other countries like France and Germany don't spend that kind of money. They spend more like in the five or $6,000 range. So we're spending that much money per person. 86% of that is going to chronic care. And our health outcomes look more like a developing country. You know, there's there's countries like Slovenia that have better health outcomes than we do. You know, um, so that means that we're doing something wrong in the system. And and what that means is that we have to look for innovation. We have to look for uh, not only innovation, not and you know. Typically, innovation is conceptualized as things like M health or E health or new therapies or new pharmaceuticals, you know, but that is only responsive to the worldview or the paradigm that it's embedded in. 
And the problem is the paradigm. You know, the paradigm has to shift as the as we start to shift our uh, the way that we look at what it means to be a human being and what it means to be healthy, then we can apply therapies that are going to be more adaptive to that reality. And so, you know, like biopsychosocial model, for example, um, which now is being called the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Um, what we know is that the biopsychosocial model is not only the best model to look at mental health challenges. It's also the best model in terms of the conceptualization and the treatment of chronic pain and chronic diseases. And so if we have that understanding, why do we keep throwing, for example, opioids at chronic pain? The medication is not what's going to address the chronic pain. We have to address the chronic pain from a holistic perspective or the chronic diseases, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we're, that we are faced with. So, so in that, in light of that challenge, in light of the crisis of healthcare, I think what we are called on, uh, what's, what's calling us is this tremendous need for another way of doing things, you know? So as we start to explore those other ways of doing things, it makes a lot of sense to look at integrative holistic medicine, integrative medicine, behavioral medicine, functional medicine, and, and certainly, um, certainly approaches that are going to really be able to dig down deep into what it means to be human and then to offer solutions based on that ontology, on that ontological understanding. So if we really have a clearer sense of what it means to be human, our treatment is going to flow from that understanding. Whereas, you know, if we're just saying human beings are like cars that are broken down and it needs a little more oil, so you put a little more whatever into the system... Um, we are missing the, the we're missing the point of what it means to be human. And our current healthcare system really pivots on a mechanistic, you know, biomedical model of what it means to be human. And that's where we keep going for these expensive and often uh, ineffectual remedies to the situation. You know, so we have to we have to be willing to look at that. We have to be willing to look at what it means to be human. We have to be willing to find our strategies from that vantage point. And when we do that, then we can understand the value of these ancient healing practices and and why they're so important. You know, my opinion, yoga is not something, first of all, there's, you know, yoga means, let's, let's start from, from the reality, which is that yoga means many different things to many people, right? So we have lots of people out there looking at yoga as a fitness strategy. We have lots of people out there looking at yoga as primarily physical, as something that maximizes physical potential, um, something that you could do as a hobby, you know, on paddle boards, in hammocks, uh, acro yoga, um, at breweries, whatever. I'm not suggesting those sorts of recreational approaches to yoga don't have their value and their merit. Certainly they do. But when we're looking at therapeutic yoga, we have to have a stronger set of parameters, a stronger ideas around what the delivery of that service looks like and what the services themselves look like. So that's why I advocate for this idea of public health yoga, where it can be integrated into the system and that uh, we're primarily looking for ways to access the relaxation response and to develop resilience in the nervous system, because I think those things are valid and important goals in terms of improving the health of populations. And I think they're different. I think it's a different way than looking at yoga as sort of some sort of a, um, a hobby, right? So it, let me just say that the also, let me include, I've been saying a lot, but let me include <laughs> that the um, f- framework for healthcare improvement that was developed by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and adopted into the Affordable Care Act called the Triple AIM is an important framework to understand in this context because yoga fits into this framework, I think, rather well. And the framework says we need to reduce costs, improve patient experience of care, and then uh, focus on populations as opposed to simply focusing on individuals. And I think yoga is really uniquely, it's, it's a unique 
possibility for meeting those demands of the triple aim. Um, and so I've written extensively about this. I have a, an ebook on my website and also a couple of articles I've written about how yoga can help to improve population health. So, and it's one of my passions for sure, because I think until we have more innovative strategies uh, to approach it, we're going to continue to um, see these tremendous costs and, and poor outcomes from the care that we're providing currently. So when, when you talk a bit, because I think it's, um, you know, so what I'm hearing you say is that we have to sort of start with the paradigm shift, you know, and that's a, that's a, a huge undertaking. And so what are some strategies to get everybody on board with that? And then, you know, and then where does yoga and, you know, these contemplative pedagogies, um, where do they sort of fit into that, into that uh, landscape or that picture? Right. Well, I don't know if getting on everybody on board is possible, (laughs) but to get a few people on board is important. And there are a few key people that are very interested and and have been promoting more of these contemplative uh, practices. When the triple aim came out, this idea, improve patient experience of care, reduce costs, focus on populations, when that came out, it was criticized, yeah, of course, because all things like that get criticized, right? And so um, what one of the big groups of people that criticized it were the providers, the healthcare providers. And their critique was that, wait a minute, you're missing a very important part of this equation, which is the self-care of the providers, the, the health of the providers, right? Uh, as everybody who's worked in the system knows, the system is brutal on the people that work in it, the nurses, the CNAs, the physicians, everybody is really maxed out, you know, and stressed out from the system. So, uh, so then we have to think about, you know, yeah, the whole system needs to be overhauled. I'm certainly an advocate of Medicare for all. And, you know, I mean, the whole, the, uh, I think, I think that healthcare is a human right and should be provided specifically in, in these, in the more developed countries. What I want to say is that the, the, to improve the, the, physician or the caregiver, it's not just physician, but to improve the uh, clinician's self-care, I think that yoga provides an optimal practice for that. And actually making time in the workday for self-care for for providers, I think should be implemented across the board in, throughout the healthcare systems. Because what that will do is that the thing that's so amazing about yoga is that it starts to work on people from the inside out, you know, so it's not necessarily that you say, oh, yeah, yoga is a good idea. And so I, you know, people should do yoga. I've found uh, working with administrators over the years is that the ones that actually practice are the ones that get it, you know, and they're, they're the ones that the transformation has worked on. And so they can see the value of it. Uh, people who just sort of look at the research and say, oh, yeah, this is, looks like a good value-added thing we could use as an add-on to our treatment center or whatever, uh, get more, you know, so we're doing the trendy thing that everybody else is doing. Uh, they're, not, they're not really leveraging it, and they, don't, they tend to not understand it. So um, I've also encountered a, a large number of physicians who, because of their training and, and often linear approach, they tend to see yoga strictly as a fitness pastime. You know, that could be that, and they'll put it in the same category as like fitness or or running or aerobic exercise or whatever. They're like, oh yeah, do yoga, it's good. You know, but, but I, there tends to be a lack of depth of understanding. So um, I think the practices themselves work. And I think if we start with the providers, often you can get gain a critical mass where you start to be able to shift the paradigm. You know, it sounds it sounds idealistic, but somebody's got to be idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, I mean, in what you're saying, I've experienced firsthand, you know, being employed at hospitals and um, just seeing the way the staff um, doesn't take care of themselves and is often extremely stressed out. And it, you know, affects the, the care that they're able to provide. It affects um, how staff treat one another in the workplace. You know, there's a lot of animosity and fear and um, 
And I think that, you know, in my experience, there's been a lot of situations where the focus, the priorities have been really, um, I think, distorted. You know, there's more focus on, well, how do I not get in trouble in this situation or how do I not get sued in this situation? And that becomes the focus versus, you know, what is the quality of care um, that I am I am providing or what does the patient actually need or what do I need to take care of myself and you know I've had a lot of people also say you know well you know why are you stressed you do yoga you know isn't yoga supposed to take your stress away and I uh, you know just kind of sit there and you know kind of just reflect on the question well I guess, but there's so much more to it than that. It's it's a lifestyle thing. It, there's a lot of components that go into somebody's stress, you know, um, being reduced or, you know, even how you're down to how your nervous system is perceiving threats in the environment, you know, it's so habitual. So I think it's way more complex. And um, I think what you're saying really you know, is kind of breaking down some of these, these misconceptions. Well, I think that's really a really important point because, um, this idea that if you do yoga, you're perfect is kind of pervasive and really ridiculous. I mean, why would relaxed people need to do yoga? (laughs) Why would perfect bendy stretchable people need to do yoga? I mean, it's really for the rest of us who have difficult times. I mean, I'm being facetious, but, but the, the, the rest of us that are, are facing a lot of stress and, you know, we, uh, we live in, in an increasingly stressful world. And if you're in healthcare, you live in an increasingly stressful world. It's not getting any better for people. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many addiction counselors I know who drink to let off stress, you know, like that's ironic. And of course I realize there's a difference between abuse and abuse, but still, you know, what are our strategies for facing our stressful lives? I mean, I think that's an important question and I think it should be asked not just personally, but institutionally. So I, I know you, you speak about, um, in, in this idea of, um, public health yoga. So when we look at, you know, what, what, how public health, um, you know, just kind of what um, the components of that framework look like, there's this, you know, prevention, treatment, aftercare, recovery, and promotion. I know you speak about that. And so what would that look like, um, you know, if yoga and some of these other contemplative-based practices were to be woven into that model? So what would that look like? Right. So I have conceptualized these four parts of health. Uh, it started as a behavioral health model, and now it's looked at more as sort of the, a treatment a continuum of care, I guess. I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the Institute of Medicine, I think it calls it, it, calls it a continuum of care. And what it looks like is going to be different based on the quadrant, right? So prevention and yoga there, that's a wonderful place to start. And it's really where yoga shines, you know, prevention. So prevention can occur on different, there's different levels of prevention and it can be uh, prevention that you help people who've already got a little bit sick to not, not let the disease progress any further, but you can also look at prevention, like preventing drug and alcohol abuse in youth. Like this, it's a big, it's a whole field. So, and unfortunately, Everybody knows, like your grandmother told you that uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and everybody knows it, but it's not glamorous, it's not sexy, and it doesn't get a lot of funding. So even though the Affordable Care Act put $10 billion into prevention, which sounds like a nice chunk of change, every year Congress takes more than half of it away uh, to go to, to put in other parts of the budget. So, you know, we are not a prevention-oriented society, that's for sure. But when you think about yoga and prevention, you know, prevention is wellness, essentially. And starting kids off, for example, with strategies to help them manage their stress from a very young age, teaching them yoga nidra, teaching them meditation practices, teaching them, you know, sun salutes, uh, can be really, really beneficial. Uh, That certainly is my experience as a sixth grader. And I think a lot of people have experienced the benefits of learning to mitigate the stress response and diminish the allostatic load from a young age. Um, Then when you look at 
health promotion. Well, let's let's talk about treatment first. Treatment is going to be different, and treatment is being. Um, that's really the domain of interest of the International Association of Yoga Therapists and the yoga therapy profession in general is treatment. So often in treatment, uh, you're going to have to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody rather than in groups. Uh, you can, I think treatment is valuable in groups as well, but it tends to be a little less effective than when you're working one-on-one. -on -one, so so when I think about yoga and population health, I think about groups of people with diabetes or groups of pregnant women or groups of at-risk youth all benefiting from similar yoga practices provided in groups so that it's cost-effective, right? So I think about it that way, but that's it's still a more of a health promotion rather than treatment technically, right? So I talked about prevention, I talked about treatment. Health promotion means wellness, essentially, and it's not as targeted on any kind of specific disease. Uh, and the Institute of Medicine says it should permeate all the other levels. It, it in and of itself is a piece of the continuum of care, but it should permeate all the other levels of care as well, prevention, treatment, and aftercare, right? So we talked about prevention, treatment, and aftercare is after somebody recovers from uh, addiction or an illness, how do they stay healthy? How do they maintain that health? I think this is one place, especially in the behavioral health world where I've spent a bit of time, that we unfortunately don't do very well, partly because it's not funded. But I think aftercare is, uh, you know, aftercare tends, like in the behavioral health world, it tends to be handled by things like, you know, 12-step groups. Um, but I think that if we were a little bit more, if we were a lot more deliberate about uh, creating and delivering aftercare programs, we would have better success rates for relapse for people in particularly in behavioral health, but through all the chronic illnesses as well. So those are the four ways I think we can conceptualize uh, yoga being delivered in more of a public or a population health way. And um, and I think we're doing a great job at the well and the wellness industry, which, by the way, is a six hundred million dollar industry. It's quite a huge industry. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, that actually might be six hundred billion. I'm not sure. I think it's six hundred billion. Yeah, I'd have to look up my numbers, but I think I got that wrong. Um, that wouldn't surprise me if it yeah. was six hundred billion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it is because back pain alone is sixty to a hundred billion dollars. But that's that's not in the well. Anyway, that's not part of wellness. It's a different number. But when I compare it, I think it, when you're looking at all of the supplements that people buy, et cetera, wellness is more of a is a huge industry, and and. Yeah, and I think uh, and yoga fits in that uh, category, but it, wellness industry tends to be exclusive to people who can afford it, right? So we're talking about disenfranchised populations, um, at-risk populations. I think we need to be thinking beyond the volunteer model. There's a lot of great volunteerism that goes on around it, but I don't think that I don't think it needs to be dependent upon volunteerism. Volunteerism can be, you know, extra to to help. But I, I don't like the trend that we are going in this country of relying on volunteerism to handle what really should be front and center of our health policies. I, I mean, I agree. I think it's a huge barrier for people because yep. of the cost, you know, related and what um, insurance will and won't pay for and people who are uninsured. So, yeah, there's a huge barrier there to being mm -hmm. able to access some of these services. And, and you're right. I do see a lot of, um, you know, institutions becoming dependent on volunteers to come in and teach yoga groups or uh, let's just, you know, see if we can, you know, contract somebody and, and not, um, you know, not pay them what, what they're worth. And it, it, I do see it a lot. And it's yep. almost that we've fallen into this place of like accepting that that's the norm, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that speaks a lot to, you know, yoga being kind of a feminized thing. And, you know, we won't <laughs> get into that today. That's a whole nother conversation um but you yeah. know just how do we take care of the people who are taking care of of others i like what you I, I love this idea of um 
after care and recovery because that's a huge, you know, that's one of the components when we look at stages of change. You know, there's, you know, after the behavior's been changed, there's that maintenance phase and the person really has to be um, able to maintain the behavior change. And that really requires support. You know, that's that sangha, that community. And that's where people are able to maintain their behavior is, you know, to have that accountability. I know that's huge with recovery, with addiction recovery. So yes, I love that. Yeah, huge with addiction recovery, and it should be huge with recovery from everything. You know, sugar addiction recovery, uh, that's helping people to support their diabetes care or you know, um, whatever, uh, you know, uh, sad American diet, standard American diet, sad diet recovery, you know, I mean, all that stuff, it could be, it could be useful. And, and also I think this, this is an important, um, piece that I talk about with my, my students and my clients a lot is, is that recovering, you know, getting to the place where you're feeling self-regulated enough that you don't are not having that constant desire to use or engage in the dysfunctional behavior that requires a change in brain structure, right? And neural networks, not only the structure, structure, but also the function of the brain. And that can take 18 months or longer for people. So in that time, having Sangha, having a, a satsang or community to support you means that you have an externalized front brain structure to support you. <laughs> you know, so I like to talk about the satsang as the, the front brain. This is your prefrontal cortex until your prefrontal cortex heals to the extent it needs to, that you can do that self-regulation. And then the giving back that's so wonderful about community. I mean, there's so much wonderful research out there about the benefits of, of giving back, of volunteerism, um, of community, of of how community heals, of the idea that the destruction of community, the dissolution of community is at the root of addiction, all of those things, you know. So I think that, and I think it's at the root of a lot of chronic illness, loneliness, depression, all of that stuff. So yeah, I think think the community that can be developed around uh, yoga practice is critical, and I think we need to be more deliberate about it. Well, I, I, I love this work you're doing around yoga as, as public health strategy. So I, it, I think that um, we are at a good, in a good place as more and more providers are becoming educated and aware of the benefits. And I think you know research is going to play a huge part in that as well. The more people we have doing it, um, the more advocates we have for the integration of yoga and um, you know contemplative practices into our healthcare system. I think we um, hopefully are moving in a in a promising direction. And I mean, I I know you know being a part of the yoga therapy community, we have more and more people getting educated, getting trained, um, even you know behavioral health practitioners who um, have been practicing for years and then they hear about your training and they go and they get trained and even if they just do a little bit of training here and there I think it helps to shift the perspective and and the paradigm yeah I think so too I mean yeah I don't know if it's ever going to shift in my lifetime but I'd like to chip away at the rock a little bit (laughs) yeah I mean it's just you know as we're speaking I'm you know being reminded of times that I've been to the doctor and you know there's you know, the doctor says, well, we can, you know, put you on this pill or put you on that pill and, you know, or you can do, you know, this with diet and lifestyle. And, you know, you're, you're kind of at that, at that fork in the road. And I think that, you know, for me, I've, you know, gone through a lot of my own recovery in, um, you know, from alcohol abuse and food addiction and, um, you know, a lot of dysregulated, uh, um, emotions and and so I, I know how much work goes into it and I think um, you know a lot of people they because there's so much work you know the pill is the easy route but in the end what you're saying is it's far more expensive and the outcome is you yeah. know may not be as as sustainable it's really interesting as I've heard Dean Ornish talk to that point and he says, you know, actually, we think the pill is easier, but he was talking about heart disease. And he was saying, but after three months, people stop taking their pills anyway. 
Uh, yeah, which is really interesting. So there's something about taking the pill that often is not, you know, it's often uh, there's something in within us that that knows that there perhaps are better solutions than that, I think. Right. I have always and, you know, it's it's fortunately it's only happened to me a few times. But in every case, I've always there's been something in my brain that says, you know what, I can do this. I can change my behavior. I can change my perspective. I, I know I can do it. And I know that that's what I'm, you know, drawn to do. So I am so grateful for the day I walked into a yoga studio, you know, just <laughs> in the in the in the depths of depression. And it was, you know, it really it that was the day, you know, my change started. So, yeah. And that and that internalizing of the locus of control is what exactly what yoga offers people is to keep internalizing that locus and driving it deeper and deeper into the deeper layers of self until it really hooks up with your spiritual will or your spiritual connection. And at that point, I think anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm very transparent with with clients that I am. I am also myself. Like I continue to be on a on a path and a journey, and I am not perfect, and I am not healed, and I still have days where I am um, paralyzed by fear and you know held hostage by anger and depression, and you know I'm just. But it's it's that it's that path. It's that journey. You know, yeah, and I think really yoga is. gives us these tools. It's it's they're tools to work with and um, to regulate our 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 biochemistry, our emotions, um, our perspective, even the way our nervous system is is taking in information. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually the tools that what might start out as tools actually starts to become the internalized, you know, so it starts to become the internal structures, uh, rather than an external tool. And that's, that's when things really shift in people's lives. Yeah. 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 Um, so tell our listeners where we can find you and how can people get in touch with you if they, if they want to. Yeah. So, um, best way to find me is subtleyoga.com. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, um, Subtle Yoga on Facebook or Christine Coveri Weber on Facebook. I'm also, I also have the Subtle Yoga community page on Facebook, which are people that have done any kind of training with me, they can join. And then, uh, you know, I have mostly on the ground programs right now. But I also have several online programs with Yoga U online, and all of those are on my website. And working on some more online programs for my website, too. So I'll have some more things coming out very soon, some more online things coming out very soon. Yeah. You are. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I follow you. I see. I see what you're up to all the time. And um, yeah. for all of you who are listening, if you want to visit Christine, she's in Asheville. She's in one of the most beautiful places in the southeast. Yeah. So if you love mountains and fresh air and festivals, and it's, yeah. it's really a beautiful place to, to go and visit. So And tons of yoga. Tons of yoga, tons yes. of massage people, tons <laughs> of acupuncture, whatever yeah. holistic... Right. thing you can think of it's in Asheville so that's right and um, sustainable sustainability yes. and organic food all that farming bioregion farming stuff that's all that's all part of Asheville it's a great place to visit I, I actually am gonna be, I have two programs coming up I have one starting in January that's a 200 hour and then we don't have the dates yet but next fall we'll have a 500 hour too well it's not a 500 300 hour advanced training for the therapeutic application yeah sounds awesome all right well thank you so much christine thank you for having me yeah it's always nice to talk to you and good luck with your podcast it it sounds like it's just a wonderful labor of love it is (laughs) thank you Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to another episode today. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christine as much as I did. I really, really believe that she is such an important voice in our yoga therapy community. She is a wonderful leader and a wonderful educator, and I just really love all of the bridge building work that she's doing between the yoga community and the broader healthcare community. So I will definitely continue to support her work. I love her idea on 
yoga as a key strategy in addressing this public health care crisis. I know firsthand that being a mental health clinician who has worked in, in a lot of healthcare facilities, I have seen firsthand the effects of burnout on the staff, and that impacts the quality of care, and it also impacts the overall health and wellness of the staff. And so I think Christine is really on the right track in addressing this because if we can help employees and healthcare workers be healthier, then we might reduce healthcare costs and we also might prevent the high turnover rate that often exists in, in healthcare companies. I also really love her idea of paradigm shift and really looking closely and examining what it means to be a human being and using that as a departure point to identify and cultivate healing strategies that will enable us all to live in our own highest frequency and in the highest and healthiest expression of ourselves. If you would like to connect with Christine, you can head over onto her website, which is www.subtleyoga.com. And there you can find all of her trainings and her workshops. And there's also a lot of really good resources on her website as well. So I really encourage you to um, get in touch with her. And um, it will also allow you to travel to one of my favorite cities in the Southeast, which is Asheville. So until next time, I wanted to just thank my editor and my husband, Mark Miller, for all of the behind the scenes work he does to get these episodes uh, ready to go out to all of you. And I really look forward to connecting with you all. If you would like um, to join our Facebook group, you can find us at Ancient Tools for Modern Living, the podcast. It's a closed group. You're welcome to join. And if you liked what you heard today, please head over to iTunes. If you feel so inclined, you can leave us some stars, leave us some reviews. It really helps other people find the podcast. So until next time, may you all be happy. May you be healthy. May you be free from suffering and may you know peace. Namaste. Namaste.